You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Monday, January 24th, 2022. I'm Ash Bennington, joined today by Real Vision's own Weston Nakamura. A lot going on to discuss today with Weston. Geopolitical instability driving volatility across asset classes, global equities selling off. But then at the end of the day, it looks like we're in green territory, positive territory on all U.S. equity indexes. A striking day. Uh, Crypto also continuing to get hammered. We're going to talk more about this. This all comes in the wake of rising tensions between Russia and Ukraine in Eastern Europe. Much to talk about today with Weston Nakamura. Weston, welcome back to the show. Thank you, sir. How are you, Ash? What are you doing in my place? (laughs) I'm trying not to get whiplash from U.S. equity markets. Okay, good luck luck, uh, avoiding that. Pretty wild day. Obviously, a lot going on today. Wild day, wild week. What do you see? What are you looking at? Most important, tell us your view. Okay, so um, the Fed obviously is, you know, right upon us. What is happening in the markets in terms of this risk, the risk off at least, um, especially today? This is not the Fed. Uh, This is by and large driven by, as you just mentioned, what is happening um, geopolitically. Uh, in Ukraine. The reason I say that is uh, very simply, if you look at two charts, I have them, uh, I tweeted them out earlier, but one is um, if you just look at a chart of the uh, Euro ruble and you just throw that on top of the S&P 500, or you have to invert that, or you can just uh, leave it as is and you throw it on top of the VIX, you'll see that they, uh, intraday basis, they, they line up very, very closely. Another chart is that so, if you so look- So what this in- is showing, Weston, j- just so for, for people who yeah. aren't as familiar with macro and, and global markets as you are, so what this is showing essentially is uh, when the Russian ruble is selling off against the euro, we're seeing that tracking exactly with what's happening in U.S. equity markets and also uh, in the VIX. In other words, geopolitical tension rising declines uh, in U.S. equity markets. Correct. Um, because, you know, it. I mean- if if Putin and and uh, and company if they invade Ukraine and then you're starting to get a lot of um, you know a lot of kind of aggressive hawkish talk out of the uh, Biden administration um, and out of UK as well, um, but, but there's just a lot of uncertainty you know around there and but they're gonna hit them they're gonna hit Russia with sanctions and this and that and it's gonna be a very ruble negative so euro ruble that's gonna trade down. You'll, you right. see it, uh, you know, trading sharply. Uh, well, euro ruble tr- trading sharply higher, um, and that that corresponds in line with the price action of uh, the S P five hundred. Uh, also, if you just look at the equity markets from you know a global uh, open to close. So starting from my side of the planet with uh, you know with uh, the Nikkei from from the D M uh, markets, the Nikkei opened down something like you know one one and a quarter percent, but it basically just rallied all the way up and it closed in the green from from being down you know one and a quarter percent euro stocks however they opened down and they closed down like f- over four percent you know not just 
SX um, 5e, but like you know the the decks, the CAC, like they they all just close on a straight line now. Do, uh, and then during that overlap period, you see uh, the the U.S. open. Uh, you see uh, equities get pulled down during U.S. Ca- U.S. cash hours until Europe markets close. At which point, your uh, U.S. stocks rebound um, after being dragged down by Europe, and they close green. So what's happening is it's Europe that is, uh, and the European geopolitical risk that is pulling, um, you know, global risk assets down. Talk a little bit about that. Give us your framework for thinking about why we're seeing declines in U- uh, in European equities as a consequence of this geopolitical instability. Uh, it's, I mean, it is. Um, I guess it would be, a, you know, sort of a for once, and you know, in a in a very very long time. Certainly, I guess within my lifetime, um, sort of this like uh, Western. Uh, you know, alliance, but leaderless Western alliance. Um, and it's, it's certainly the first, uh, you know, kind of major geopolitical conflict within the Biden administration. Right. Um, you know, kind of really was, but, but, you know, absent like, um, you know, an Angela Merkel and, you know, all, all of these sort of, um, you know, like a vacuum of leadership or at least, um, you know, the conflicting, um, you know, leadership. I mean, you have, you know, net gas, you have, um, Putin with leverage over that, over Europe, you know, you have the, you have the winter, you have uh, China involved, basically, we have Xi Jinping saying, do not start like invading countries heading into the Olympics, we are going to have a global orderly Olympics, Putin cannot wait until the end of the Olympics, because it'll start to get warm out, and he will have no longer have his net gas leverage. Like, there's so many, like, you know, different parts um, that are, right. um, uh, you know, that, that each, any one of them could be a source of, of major sort of uncertainty and, and volatility in, in and of itself. Yeah. So, um, versus, like, the Fed, which everyone knows what they're going to, they're, they're going to cut rates. Let me just add three quick data points here around what's happening uh, in Ukraine right now in Eastern Europe. Uh, so first of all, the, the, the Russo-Ukrainian uh, war has been an ongoing conflict. Uh, over 10,000 people have already uh, unfortunately died in that war uh, that began in 2014. The fear now, the concern is that there is going to be a large-scale invasion of Ukraine by Russia. That's the worry. That's the concern. That's particularly uh, troubling because Ukraine uh, borders Romania and Poland, both of which uh, are within the NATO alliance, part of the Article 5 mutual protection uh, agreement, uh, meaning uh, that this has direct geopolitical impact vis-a-vis the United States and and Western allies. Uh, And finally, reporting today by The New York Times uh, that President Biden is considering considering, uh, putting U.S. troops into the region, uh, and that is obviously uh, something that is potentially a direct uh, involvement for the United States. Again, this is being reported by the New York Times. It has not been confirmed by the White House. So that's just the general framework. Weston, you transitioned there a little bit to talk about what's happening uh, more broadly uh, in the macroeconomic sphere with inflation and the Fed. Give us a sense of what your thinking is there. Uh, regarding the the Fed for this this upcoming FOMC policy, or well, yeah, you essentially said that you think that the risk is baked in. I, I would sort of say, look, the Fed is having problems right now on both sides of the mandate, uh, the dual mandate. You have uh, effectively uh, CPI at higher rates than we've seen at any point in the last forty years. Uh, this is considerable inflationary pressure. While meanwhile, at the same time, 
while we've seen a kind of baseline recovery on the unemployment rate, we're still negative 3.6 million jobs dating back to February of 2020 at the beginning of the COVID crisis. Uh, this is a challenging time for the Fed. Obviously, they've begun the taper. There's talk now about interest rate normalization in the wake of rising inflation and potentially unwinding the balance sheet. How do you parse all of these variables? Um, so I would say that, you know, I guess from, from the beginning of this year, you know, which is obviously not, not too long ago, uh, certainly the sell side banks have kind of gotten into this competition of trying to out hawk each other with how many, you know, how, how hawkish the rate, you know, the, the Fed is going to be. And right now, um, you have markets pricing in, I think four rate hikes, you have like a 50 basis point rate hike for March um, and all that. I I think that that is a little bit excessive in terms of not what they should do or anything like that, but what what's actually going to you know transpire. Um, and I think also that if the Fed doesn't deliver on a very I guess you know super hawkish relative to how they've been you know uh, in the last several years. Uh, super hawkish um, sort of message, or, you know, uh, this week, then um, that's that's going to um, that's going to seriously, you know, kind of throw a, uh, I guess, sort of like a like a whipsaw into markets um, in, in directionally. Um, you know, you're probably not going to see like a, a full on risk on, but you're going to see like a lot of short covering and a lot of volatility, upside volatility, which is, you know, not any more pleasant than uh, downside volatility. Um, the one thing I'll also say too, um, regarding you know, I mean, there's obviously a lot of cross-asset sort of correlations, but uh, Brian, if you actually pull up this chart of um, Eurodollar futures versus Bitcoin, so the last time I was uh, on the daily briefing, uh, Maggie had asked me about um, you know, do FOMC, um, you know, does does the does a, a hawkish Fed have like any impact on Bitcoin? And basically, what I said was no, because Bitcoin traders probably don't really care about uh, you know FOMC um, sort of expectations. And what I was referring to in my defense was um, like dot plots and all that kind of thing. But nonetheless, I looked into it like you know later that day. Turns out I was very very wrong. So <laughs> December uh, twenty two euro dollar futures. Um, that's the orange. Okay. Uh, they actually do trade very much in line with Bitcoin spot. Um, and that's kind of a more of a recent phenomenon. Um, and, you know, if you look at the bottom part of the chart, um, that's kind of zoomed in for like a year to date, you know, last few days or so. And um, you'll see that they kind of like kind of trade inverse for a little bit. But then like starting at the beginning of the year when the volume drops off after the volume picks up again, um, they really just kind of lock into place. So you can you might see a situation in which right now your dollar futures are priced pressing in like I said a very kind of hawkish Fed and if the Fed for whatever reason because risk assets have sold off a lot or whatever it is um, but if they aren't as hawkish as the market is kind of positioned for and your dollar uh, futures start to trade upwards um, and you know that that might actually put a at least a temporary floor under um, or stop the momentum under risk assets, including Bitcoin and, and S&P and other, other things too. So. so so, those declining euro dollar futures uh, inversely correlated with the rate. In other words, those are showing a hawkish uh, tightening stance being priced into euro dollar futures markets by the Fed. Yeah. The, so when, when those trade down, that's basically rate 
rate hikes, the uh, right. Fed funds rates, you know, front end rates being pulled up. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah. Uh, Weston, by the way, much to talk about here with Bitcoin and crypto, but while we're talking about the Fed, while we're talking about inflation, I wanted to turn to an interview uh, on Real Vision today. Uh, this is an interview between Rob Arnott uh, interviewing the economist John Cochran, uh, a piece called Why Chronic Misdiagnosis Will Lead to Persistent Inflation. This is on the Essential Pro and Plus tier here at Real Vision. Let's take a look at the clip. The other feature you should keep in mind is, is uh, inflation is uh, it's like a bank run. It's like mm-hmm. stocks. Um, the central mechanism of inflation is if, if we knew exactly inflation would be higher next year, then everyone would go out and raise prices now. We'd have inflation right now. And everyone would demand higher wages right now. And everyone would be willing to pay those higher prices right now. Just like stocks. If you knew stocks would be higher next year, you'd, you'd go out and buy them and they'd go up today. So inflation is inherently hard to predict. And a lot of the mechanism is like, is like a bank run. It's like a crisis. If you knew there was going to be a bank run tomorrow, you'd go get your money today and out we go. Mm-hmm. So um, the way I think of it is, is inflation is like a fault line. It's like, a, uh, a, like an earthquake fault. I live in California on an earthquake fault. Uh, haven't had an earthquake fault in, uh, in 10 years either, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't worry about one uh, breaking up. To add to that, um, so this one was much larger. Uh, this is how Larry Summers got it right. He, he took out a back of an envelope. He said, my best guess of the GDP gap is, I forget his numbers, but I'll, I'll make some. My best guess of the GDP gap is about $2 trillion. They showered us with $5 trillion of money. Bing, there's going to be inflation. Uh, and Larry's back of the envelope said it was less last time. Also, uh, last time there was credibly a lack of demand, if you want to use some simple term for why we had a recession. This time, a COVID crisis and lockdown is not a lack of demand. You can give people all the money you want when, when there's a pandemic out. They're not going out to dinner. <laughs> it's, it's like a big snowstorm as far as the economy is concerned. So treating it with extra demand was simply a mistake. You, you had a supply shift. The economy is locked down. And it's not, it, the restaurants are not empty because people don't have enough money to, to buy things. The restaurants are empty because they're legally locked down and no one wants to go to them. So there's a fundamental misdiagnosis of uh, of the of the need for for a stimulus. Well, there you have it—a fundamental misdiagnosis. Uh, this idea of two and a half times the demand gap being put on on fiscal policy stimulus. Uh, this sets up the case for structural inflation. Weston, you and I were talking a little bit uh, as the clip was running about your thoughts on how to position for this scenario. Um, yeah, it's not really a um position for this particular scenario um but so i actually have a a trade um on in in which to play this current market um that i kind of want to uh share with the audience Um, yeah walk us through it this is not this is not trading advice here okay here's a disclaimer if you listen to me you will lose money because this is a very bad idea that's as clear as i can get okay i've never heard that disclaimer before yeah, that's as clear as like if you listen if you listen like if you and if you want to use me as a reverse indicator, you'll still somehow lose money. So just don't just don't listen. Um, 
So um, <laughs> now it's very dangerous for like for me to at least just be outright short anything. Um, I I the 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 unlimited upside and the limited uh, or the uh, limited upside and unlimited downside is not a appealing risk reward. Um, I like to do pair trades, um, market neutral pair trades, where you do you you know you short something, you take the proceeds, and you go long something, and therefore you actually don't have any any sort of out of pocket um, you know capital outlay. Um, and if you do it sort of directionally, you know uh, market neutral, then you actually reduce your volatility. So a way to that I've been playing you know uh, the downside um, for like Nasdaq for tech, uh, U.S. tech, for example, is uh, that I've been taking advantage of this Sony sell-off. Um, so Sony sold off because Microsoft, um, you know, put a bid for ATVI, at, you know, $95 per share. And that basically just crushed Sony shares. Um, they had, Sony had its worst, uh, like, single-day drop since October of 2008. October of 2008, when Lehman, you know, destroy the world um, because Microsoft went long Call of Duty and the metaverse. So uh, seems like a lot of, you know, basically every sort of bad news is kind of currently priced into Sony. Um, and that sets up for a really interesting, you know, pair trade in which you can go long Sony and short. Uh, I, I actually used, um, uh, you, you, you can use the cues, but uh, I actually used uh, the, um, the the tech sector ETF. Um, so if you look at, Brian, if you go to the, the first chart, um, is that up already? Yeah, yeah. So basically what you have here is Sony is a Japanese company, trades, uh, you know, in the Tokyo Stock Exchange. So basically I have both the ADR and 6758 Sony up. And what you see here is this huge drop, um, you know, led by the U.S., but then you see this enormous drop further, um, you know, during Japan hours, and basically Sony gets crushed because of Japanese uh, panic selling. That was sort of this kind of you know opportunity uh, for me to you know to to do this pair trade. So second chart is um, basically uh, go to the second chart, Brian. Uh, this is. Uh, yeah, same thing versus the Nikkei, and you can see the Nikkei has not been doing well. It's down four percent over that time, but you can see how badly Sony got crushed. That makes it a great opportunity for you to go long this because you know basically every sort of bad news is priced in from a you know a single stock perspective as well as a broader you know sell off perspective. Uh, third ch third chart is um, this is uh, okay. So these are basically the the sort of the sectors. This is XLK is the uh, the ETF that I'm using to go short. But you could use the Sox um, Philly, uh, Philadelphia Semiconductor uh, ETF as well, and you'll see that Sony is just kind of just underperforming all of those. And then the next chart, um, this is the actual long short. So this is since I put it on. This is just about two days ago. Um, Sony has kind of recovered a little bit. XLK is down five percent. Um, this was uh, before today is open, um, and this this pair trade, this market neutral pair trade, is up about six percent right now as we speak. Um, and then next chart is um, uh, this is since the March 20, uh, 20 sell-off, and you'll see that Sony actually does track XLK quite well. This is why um, I chose it, but it is not a member of XLK. Uh, however, many of its competitors are are in it, so it makes it sort of a perfect sort of you know long short setup. And then final chart is um, let's see what is the final chart. Uh, 
Uh, oh yeah, again, and then again, this is just the pair trade. So this is a way that you could actually, this is not a long Sony trade or anything like that. Um, this is more so a uh, short, um, you know, SP, SPX tech, um, but you could do it hedged because Sony has just been crushed and sold off. And not because, and not in the way that Peloton did and not in the way that Netflix did. Those are fundamental to those specific, um, you know, companies. This is because of a, you know, a takeover that might not even go through. Um, I think Microsoft offered $95 per share. Uh, Activision never even got up. I think it got up to like 86. So even Activision shareholders aren't really believing, uh, aren't, aren't buying it or selling it in this case. Uh, so, um, so this is, you know, just sort of a way that you can hedge a short position, uh, play the downside, and really, you know, you're kind of market neutral directionally, and um, you're, you're, you know, neutralizing a lot of the volatility as well, and then you're neutralizing the cost. So this is just something I have on. Um, it's probably short term. Um, if Sony reports earnings in the beginning of February, if the stock pops, uh, like it has times a lot in the last several earnings, I'm going to have to take off the, the, the trade, which is kind of unfortunate because I want to play more of the downside if that should continue. But that's basically a way that you can sort of think about playing uh, the downside um, for situations like this. Because this is not like a, this is not like a, this is an actual sell-off. This is not like some gamma flip or some you know, uh, like mechanical, like March 2020 sort of situation. This is an actual orderly sell-off that's that's taking place right now. So, yeah, really interesting, Weston. Always a pleasure to take a look at those charts, look at your correlations. Fascinating stuff. Um, by the way, talking about sell-offs, we mentioned uh, earlier in the show a couple of times actually uh, what's happening right now in cryptocurrency. I want to jump in here uh, a little bit. Actually, while we've been talking, it looks like uh, Bitcoin up over 37,000. Uh, I'm looking right now on CoinGecko. Uh, it's really interesting to see the volatility in this asset class. Let me give a little bit of context here of what we're looking at and a little bit of the historical framework. And there it goes, about below 37,000, 36,956. So it's hovering right around that level. What does that mean uh, in terms of where we are relative to 52 week highs. We're off right now about 46% uh, on Bitcoin. On Ethereum, uh, we're down around 49%, 49.5%, so just uh, a shade under uh, off 50%. Obviously, these are significant moves. Uh, people who have invested uh, in this, particularly recently, particularly near uh, local highs, experiencing a lot of pain right now. Uh, and we don't want to minimize that, of course, but I also want to give a little bit of context for these price movements uh, and what we're seeing here. Uh, max drawdowns from this peak looking close to 50% on both of these assets. Here's a little bit of context, Weston you may find this interesting. November 2011, max drawdown 92%. January 2015, this is on Bitcoin. January 2015, max drawdown on Bitcoin 84% or thereabouts. I just eyeballed this on a max drawdown chart uh, earlier. December 2018, minus 83% drawdown in Bitcoin. March 2020, minus 71% in Bitcoin from previous peak. July 2021, off 50%. So what we're seeing here uh, actually is uh, obviously a very highly volatile asset class. Uh, as with all volatile assets, uh, the challenges are, uh, as Raul has pointed out before, people who have excessive leverage, uh, excessive risk-taking in terms of putting on too much exposure to a given asset or a given asset class get absolutely hammered. But in the general context of what we're looking at uh, for volatile for max drawdown, this actually is showing a pattern of higher lows. 
Yeah, and uh, lower highs on realized volatility as well. Um, yeah. And higher I mean, highs look... on price, obviously, considerably. Yeah, um, so uh, one month realized vol at 50, this used to be at 400 realized, so. Realized. Yeah. Uh, look, I mean, the Turkish lira has, is, is more volatile than, than Bitcoin. That's <laughs> not a thing, but, you know. Listen, by the way, what does this tell you about the price of Bitcoin tomorrow, next week, next month? Absolutely nothing. And that's the important point, I think. But look, in the broader context, this is why I'm so interested in this asset class. I've been watching software for a very long time, particularly fintech. I've been doing fintech stuff since before they called it fintech. Uh, I was a tech consultant when I was barely old enough to drink legally. You know, back in my early 20s, uh, when I was working on Wall Street, I was actually uh, at Credit Suisse. Uh, in April of 2000, this was the the the, the month that the Nasdaq collapsed and the so-called dot com uh, dot bomb collapse. I remember I went up to the trading floor that day because I knew it was a historic moment and I wanted to see it and I wanted to be there and I wanted to be part of it because I knew it would be something to remember. Here's the reality. We didn't stop using email. We didn't stop using the internet because the NASDAQ sold off. I think so too with what's happening in digital assets here. I don't get up on a soapbox a lot on Real Vision Daily Briefing, but I want to talk about why this is something that I'm incredibly passionate about. My my conviction uh, is that these distributed networks that use the properties uh, of mathematics and the laws of physics to secure the to secure the transfer of value, identity, and trust on the web has a profound implication for the way that communication gets done, for the way that business gets done, for the way that we communicate. I think we're still seeing a profound shift. Price volatility, 50% loss, doesn't change any of that. I'm curious, Weston, how do you think about what's happening in the digital asset space? Do you look at it purely as a technical risk asset, uh, or do you think about some of the more uh, other implications more broadly? I mean, I'm, I, I can't follow that. Are you kidding me? <laughs> um, no, um, in all seriousness, yeah. So, okay, I have um, I have a core long position that I just have stored away that I don't touch. In addition to that, I actively, proactively trade um, Bitcoin because it's fun to trade. And because of when I trade it, I, I understand it more. And I, at the end of the day, I am a price action person. Um, and yes, it is volatile, but... Um, and of course, it's a risk asset because, you know, like you and I were discussing before, especially with, you know, Ethereum and sort of the layer twos, you're pulling forward. So like what you're saying, like, you know, in terms of like the future and all that, you're pulling forward so much of this like future upside, which I believe is there. But because right. of that, of course, it's going to be a risk asset and not a, a store of, uh, you know, stability or uh, some low vol sort of um, store value or medium of exchange or anything like that. Um, with, with respect to, you know, again, like the, the, the Solanas or the, insert any sort of, you know, um, right. but, but yeah, at the end of the day, like, yeah, this is, we're talking about a, a decade and change for an entire asset class. We've never seen an asset class being born out of, you know, out of, from scratch before. Nobody has that's currently alive, you know, and, and for that reason alone, I don't care really what your opinion is of it. You need to at least be involved just so you can understand what it's like to have a brand new asset class enter the menu of asset classes, which doesn't change normally. You know, it's it's fixed income, uh, equities, currencies, commodities, and then Question. something else. So, 
Wesley, you followed it brilliantly. I love this idea of demand being pulled forward. That's a perfect way to think about it, I think. This idea that there's a lot of future potential from these networks, that demand basically gets pulled forward, reflected in the price. Of course, there's going to be volatility. Makes perfect sense to me. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. By the way, I know we could talk about this all day, uh, but we've got a lot of questions coming in for you uh, that I wanted to hit. The first one, well, let's take a look. Uh, This one comes to us from Andre Ventenhouse uh, from YouTube. And the question is, what do you think about the position of China question mark exclamation point? What's your take on what's happening in China right now? The position of China or taking a position in China? He's phrased it the position of China. So I think he's talking broadly about the the structure uh, of some of the things that you've reflected on uh, with regard to some of the potential uh, for debt uh, and leverage challenges in uh, in 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 China. Okay, so I put out a video about this last week. Um, so last week uh, last week you'll see that the market sold off every single day except for one day where the Hang Seng Index rallied three and a half percent, led by the property sector and by um, the you know the 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 Meituans, the Alibabas, and so on and so forth. And that was because China actually cut finally the right rate, which was the five-year LPR, which is the rate that targets mortgages. And so this was the first time that China has signaled that they're going to be using um, monetary policy to actually support or at least not like, you know, continue to hammer down on the uh, property sector during this deleveraging campaign. And that's what rallied uh, risk assets. So there might be a turning point there. Uh, I will. I do have a very kind of controversial. This is, this is the prime rate. Weston, is that right? Loan prime rate. Right. Yeah, they've cut that before in December, but that was one-year loan prime rate that applies more to corporates. They did, they did that to highlight the fact that they're not, not touching the five-year. This time, they actually cut the five-year, which applies to mortgages. My very controversial sort of idea that I'm just going to throw out there, and I don't really care what the feedback or blowback is going to be, is so uh, COVID zero, zero COVID, um, this, the, China's policy. Um, what I will say about that is that I think that China is very aware that it's economic, economically damaging, and I also, I also think that they're very aware that it doesn't work. Um, and so why are they doing this? Well, they're doing it, first of all, because they've done it for so long that they kind of, they're, they're stuck with it. They can't, you know, not do it anymore. But also, it's a very, at the very least, it's a very convenient sort of way to, um, or coincidental or otherwise, uh, to basically not have uprisings and protests and things like, you know, social unrest and gas, because if there is some sort of a corporate-induced populist sort of anger against the, you know, the the, the lever grands or the property sector as a whole or, or you know, um, whatever it may be. Um, you just, you're just calling it lever grand now. You're, you're always just going to yeah, have that hell on the front. It, they, they deserve it. And so, you know, if they if the if if the government like cracks down on those protests, those gatherings, then they are going to be seen as kind of sticking up for the corporate elite. And that that can't happen because then the pitchforks will turn on them. 
So this is a way for them to disperse the crowd, right? And I mean, if you just ask Hong Kong protesters in 2019, I mean, they wouldn't quit for anything except this pandemic. And I think Beijing noticed. So I think COVID zero is providing this very nice sort of uh, side effect uh, beneficiary of um, allowing them to exert their, you know, kind of lockdown or their suppressing of mass gatherings in the name of COVID and all that. Yeah. Uh, Weston, changing gears here, uh, this is a question for you from James Fox. Uh, this comes from the exchange that's Real Vision's internal social network here. Uh, and the question is, what do you think of the idea that Bitcoin price is leading the stock market? Is leading? Yeah. What, what, does, what does that mean by, in, in terms of... I think, he's, I, mean, I, think, I think he's suggesting that the sell-off uh, in digital assets precipitated uh, a decline in U.S. and potentially global equity markets. I think like that's the nature today? of the question. Okay. Uh, what do I make of it? Um, I mean, I, I think that that's... Look, Bitcoin is uh, just another... I don't want to say just another, but it is currently behaving in the same way as global risk assets. And sometimes one will lead another. And so right now at this particular hour with U.S. markets, cash equity markets closed, yeah, it's going to lead the futures market. So, I mean, I don't really make anything particularly of it. I would say look at BTC JPY and look at round levels on that. And you can see my tweets all about that as well. But um, yeah, um, just keep a close eye on, you know, like the the 4 million yen uh, level and you know, make sure yeah. that like there's that or, or, or doesn't. Yeah, this is a fascinating idea, looking at Bitcoin priced in yen. You've shown some strong correlations in some of the charts that you've tweeted uh, before. Final question, uh, Weston. This one comes to us from Lothar M. from The Exchange. Do you think the exciting NFL games lifted U.S. futures on Sunday evening? I think we may have lost Weston. Um, I don't know the answer to that question, but I will tell you it raises some serious questions about the overtime rule. Uh, and man, Patrick's Mahomes is great. Mahomes is great to watch play. I hope he invests in Bitcoin uh, so we can interview him on Real Vision. I'm not sure if we were able to get Weston back. I wanted to give him the last word, uh, but I think we're having some technical problems. Uh, so I just wanted to thank you again for watching the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Alfonso will be here tomorrow with Tony Greer. And as always, the conversation continues on Real Vision's The Exchange. Thanks for watching, everybody. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.